0: Excellent. Well, I'll pray, and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time to gather together uh, to learn more about your Word. And we do pray, Lord, as we look at uh, your end times, the plan that you have for us, that we'd be able to have clarity of thought, that we may be able to understand things and put our scriptures together. I pray, Lord, again, you would enable us to persevere through believing your promises We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, last time we were talking about, in our studies in Revelation, we're almost to the end. And by the way, we could be done next week. But I wanted to hit this idea of all of our eschatology, our terms, because this idea of Jesus coming soon brought up the doctrine of imminence. And so I thought, I wanted to have a time where we put all of the concepts in eschatology together and relate them to Daniel's 70th week. Why? Because Revelation chapter 6 all the way to chapter 19 is about the 70th week of Daniel. And then of course chapters 20 through 22 are what immediately follows after the 70th week. So with that, that's what we want to do. And we left off talking about Daniel's 70th week prophecy. And I know that was difficult because we didn't have anything to look at. We were just reading passages so, I wanted to put it on the screen to give you an overview as to how that prophecy works, how it's fulfilled, etc. So, recall, Daniel had a 70 weeks prophecy in which six things would occur that had to do with uh, ultimate righteousness coming, the end of sin, basically perfection coming, and that was going to be fulfilled at the second advent of Messiah. But he gave 490 years. Now, let me pull up my pointer and remind you that as you read Daniel chapter 9, the 70 weeks in Hebrew, it's literally 70 sevens or 70 heptaths. So the week just means a a week of years or seven years. So 70 times seven is really what it's referring to or 490 years. But if you look at that prophecy, recall, it made an issue of the first 483 years. And that's because it referred to a seven-week period plus a 62-week period or 69 weeks of years. And again, if you multiplied 69 times 7, what do you get? You get 483 years. That would be the first advent of Christ. And conspicuously left to the very end of Daniel 9:27 was the final seven years. So let's start... By looking at the first 483 years, remember it was broken into 7 and 62. The first 7 weeks, remember 7 times 7 is 49 years, would be the time in which re, the rebuilding of Jerusalem would be completed. Now, that decree that begins this whole prophecy was the decree given by Artaxerxes. You can read about it in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. And that was the decree not only to rebuild Jerusalem, but also to build its walls, etc. And that's why that's the best date. It's March 5th, 444 B.C. Well, if you do the math, the first 49 years had to do with the reestablishment of Jerusalem, which would have been around 395 B.C. Well, then what you have is, and by the way, in my timeline, the Star of David there, if you can see on my timeline, that is representing the reestablishment of the temple, okay, in Jerusalem, I couldn't think of another way of putting the temple on there. So that's my timeline. So think of that as being 395 B.C. Well, then what you have is another 62 weeks of years or 434 until the coming of the Messiah at his first advent. And remember, you read about this in Daniel 9.25 and into verse 26. It talks about the Messiah coming and that he'd be cut off. Well, if you do all of the arithmetic, that ends up being 33 A.D., the very year that he was crucified, he indeed was cut off. And so on our timeline, think of the cross as representing the first advent of Christ. That's 33 AD. Now, in the same prophecy, then, if you kept reading in Daniel 9, there are seven years left over. There's one week of years. And that's the focus of Daniel in Daniel 9:27. This is where he talks about the Antichrist making a covenant with Israel for seven years. And in the middle of that time period, he is going to break it, which is at the three and a half year mark, which brings in the great tribulation. So here's what I want you to see here in this Daniel 70th week prophecy. The first 483 years ends. If you add the 434 to 449, you have 483 years. That's the Messiah's first advent. The last seven years that are still in our future, and let me put up the timeline, has to do with the second Advent. Is everyone with me? So you and I are living somewhere in this time period. We can call this time period between the first Advent and the last seven years, we can refer to this time period as the church age. We can refer to it as the time of the Gentiles, as stated in Luke 21. Or we can refer to it as the last days they are synonymous okay yeah eric
1: yeah i just wanted to cuz we've this is just so important i just wanted yeah. to make sure that I'm trying to highlight this, and I think this is actually true. I just want you to weigh in on it. I've got an NASB translation, and it it breaks out the 62 weeks and the 7 weeks. It does it exactly like that. It makes it so crystal clear. Exactly. I've got an ESV translation, and I can't quote that from memory. I don't have it with me. Sure. But it's a little less clear. And so the NASB, which is, I I believe that that's word for word from the... Original, uh, it, it just makes it so much clearer. Uh, you guys, I know when you preach, you like to look at the Greek and the Hebrew, yeah. and, and use the best, use yeah. the best uh, translation. And this is a good example. I think people get real confused about this stuff, and they may have a like a King James translation, or a, I, I'm not trying to pick on King James. I don't sure. know what that one says, but NASB makes it very clear. This oh, good
0: yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, the NASB is very much uh, what we call. a uh, um, a formal equivalence, not thought for thought, but for word for word. And it does do a good job in this section. I agree with you. But yeah, it's, the big issue is just seeing how the writer of Daniel structures this. And by the way, if any of you are looking for a good commentary on the book of Daniel that isn't overwhelming, but you'll get really good data, there's a man named John Whitcomb. He put out a very good commentary. It's, it's fairly thin. It's very readable. It's just on the book of Daniel, and he'll lead you through this. John Whitcomb is the name. I think he's the most readable for the layman. So John Whitcomb, Whitcomb is his name. You could probably get it on Amazon or uh, Christian book distributors, how, um, whatever you shop for your book. So, yeah, so that's how it lays out. Now, the one thing I want to point out is, again, the 70th week of Daniel, the 70 weeks, notice the first 483 have to do with the first advent of Christ here. The last seven years have to do with the second advent of Christ. One thing we can conclude from that is all of the promises that God gave to Daniel regarding Israel is fulfilled in Messiah. It's Messiah's work. So in other words, he doesn't say that, well, you guys are going to bring about your own righteousness by pulling up your boots, by, you know, yourselves by your bootstraps. No, it's going to be the Messiah's work, isn't it? He comes the first time to put away sin. He comes the second time to save his people and to judge his enemies. Okay, so it's the work of the Messiah that's going to bring all of the promises. Now, just as the first 483 years had to do with the first advent, shouldn't we also therefore suspect that the last seven years have to do with his second advent? That's what the text is telling us. Now, there's obviously a delay intended not only by the writer of Daniel, but even just through history, there's obviously been a delay between the first advent and the second advent. The reason I'm laboring this point is I want you to think of the last seven years as the second advent of Christ. Again, the technical term that's used often in the New Testament is the term parousia, which refers to the coming of Christ. The coming of Christ isn't a one-day event. It's a seven-year time period, beginning with the rapture of the church, followed by the coming of Christ with the church at the very end. But in between, His wrath is poured out. So that's how we should conceive it. So here's the significance of the 70th week. The 70th week can be referred to as Christ's second advent. and can be referred to as Christ's parousia. But as I will show you, it also can be referred to as the beginning of the broad day of the Lord. That's how important the 70th week of Daniel is. That's how significant it is. So if we don't understand the relationship between the 70th week, Christ's coming, we're going to be led astray. We're going to be just led off into the tulips and we won't know what's going on. That's the significance of the 70th week of Daniel. When does the 70th week of Daniel come? We don't know it's imminent. It's at hand. When does the day of the Lord come? We don't know it's at hand. Why? Because it's synonymous with the 70th week of Daniel. When does the coming of Christ come? We don't know. It's at hand. Why? Because it's synonymous with the 70th week of Daniel. That's why I think so many people are confused, is because they don't see the significance of the 70th week of Daniel. Okay? So let's go on to talk about a couple of other terms that are related we just defined the 70th week of Daniel. Let's look at the term tribulation, and I also want to define the term great tribulation. Let's talk about tribulation, and let's talk about why this is important to understand. How many here have ever discussed eschatology with a post-trib person? I, I know Nancy has, and per, perhaps some of you have. Perhaps some of you are a little unfamiliar with the term post-trib. Those, who are, those people who hold to post-tribulationalism believe that Jesus Christ will rapture his church at the end of the 70th week. Now one of the arguments they will make is that the church has been promised to go through tribulation. Are you with me? And they'll say that for example in Acts 14:22, remember that's where Paul said through many trials and tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. But here's what I want you to understand. I want you to see that there are two different categories of what's called tribulation or thlipsis, as it's used in the Greek. There are tribulations or trials that we go through here in this life, but then there is the trial that comes upon the whole world in the 70th week of Daniel. And they have to be distinguished. Okay, So in Acts 14.22, when Paul says, through many trials and tribulations, we must inherit the kingdom of God, He's talking about the fact that the people of God are not going to have a bed of roses during the church age or the last days. We're going to have all sorts of troubles. We're going to have troubles with our own families. We're going to have troubles with ourselves. We're going to have troubles with our neighbors. All sorts of trials, tribulations. But that is not the tribulation of the 70th week of Daniel. Now let me give you a passage that shows you a difference between the trials that you and I go through here and now during this church age. Remember this time period from the first advent to the second advent, we can call it the church age, we call it the last days, or the time of the Gentiles. During that time period, we're going to have trials. But what's promised is in the 70th week of Daniel, there's a reversal where the people of God will be saved once and for all because of the rapture. We'll be in our resurrected bodies always to be with Christ. And the tribulations come upon the people of the earth. That is, those who don't belong to Christ. Now, here's an important passage that makes this distinction. Please turn your Bibles, if you will, to 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 7. This is a great reversal where you see see a distinction between the afflictions that we have now and what will happen in the 70th week of Daniel. Now, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, I don't have to remind you probably that both 1 and 2 Thessalonians are very important to our understanding of the day of the Lord and eschatology. 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul talked about the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 5, he talks about the day of the Lord. Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we talk, he talks about references with the Antichrist, the apostasy, etc. So here, notice in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 6-7... Paul, by the way, was congratulating those in Thessalonica for their faith in Christ, saying that this was given to them by God. But notice here he says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Now stop there. Notice that term affliction. That's thalipsis. That term could be rendered tribulations. It's the same term Paul used in Acts 14.22 when he said through many trials and tribulations, thalipsis." We must inherit the kingdom of God. But notice here the reversal. He's talking to believers. He says, again, that it's only right for God to repay with affliction. That's tribulation. Those who put you in tribulation. And notice he says, give relief to you who are afflicted. And to us as well, when the Lord Jesus, when does this occur? When the Lord Jesus will be revealed, he says, from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire. Well, when does that occur? Well, that occurs in the 70th week of Daniel. So notice in the 70th week of Daniel, there's going to be a reversal. Those people, the people of God, who have been afflicted during the church age, the last days, the time of the Gentiles, they're going to be saved, and the enemies of God are going to go through tribulation. Does that make sense? So that's the reversal we should see. Yeah, Brian. The... uh... the
1: fall in the garden uh, set off for everybody
0: uh, that came into existence thereafter, tribulation. Exactly right. Well said. In fact, the entire cosmos was put in decay and was subjected to futility, as the Apostle Paul states. And exactly right. So, yeah, this tribulation will end for us at the 70th week, but for those who reject Christ it gets worse. And that's why, remember the Revelation 3.10 is a very important verse. That's where Jesus gave the promise to the church at Philadelphia, because you've been faithful to keep my word, the term for keep can literally be rendered guard. You've guarded my word, I will guard you or keep you from the hour of trial that comes upon the whole earth to test those who dwell upon the earth remember that phrase, those who dwell upon the earth, used eight times in the book of Revelation, always referring to whom? The unregenerate, exclusively the unregenerate. So, when Jesus says that in Revelation 3.10, that hour of trial is coming upon whom? Those who dwell upon the earth. It's only for unbelievers. Okay? So, that's one thing that we have to see, is that the tribulation period is a time where you and I are spared. And there's a reversal, the tribulation comes upon the enemies of God. I'm sorry, we had uh, Lonnie.
2: Um, okay, when they say that uh, we will encounter problems and tribulations uh, during the church age or whatever, I mean, isn't it, didn't it start during creation that everybody had problems and tribulations and. Uh, both the heathen and the followers followers of God. I mean, yeah. they. I mean, so it's sort of like the same thing,
0: right? Or what? No, this is different. Um, let me put it this way: There's been many antichrists, but there's going to be one antichrist. Are you with me? There's been many antichrists that have come into the world, as John says, but there's also coming one antichrist who is going to be the coup de gras, or as my brother would say, the coup de grassy. <laughs> well,
2: no, Does that make no, sense? I'm not, I'm not talking about Antichrist, I guess. No, I'm I know di- you're not
0: talking about I'm making an analogy, just as there are tribulations here and now, but then there's the tribulation in the 70th week. Are you with well, me? Well, yeah, yeah, in the yeah.
2: 70th week. But, I mean, I'm talking about now during the church age, don't we experience the same tribulations that people before the first advent be, I mean uh, you know from well, creation you're no, but you're through trying to
0: Abraham yes.
2: to Moses and,
0: no, but you're saying there were tribulations uh, yeah, certainly here during the church age but prior to Christ there yeah. were tribulations and trials absolutely I would say the same thing my whole point is trying to say once you get into the 70th week these trials and tribulations that the world experienced I'm talking about the unregenerate world are far different than anything the world has ever experienced right. and you and I are going to be spared from it And so these tribulations are so bad that you're going to have demonic hordes, according to uh, the book of Revelation, that will come out of the abyss. Um, We're going to lose a third of the population from one battle. Uh, We'll lose a half by the fourth seal or a quarter of the earth's population by the fourth seal. So yeah, it's going to be much worse. But I want you to see the idea of reversal. But you're right. Before the cross and after the cross, during this time period, people were suffering trials and tribulations. Well said. Yep. So anybody else on that? I'm glad you pointed that out. Maybe that was confusing to some. Anybody else on that? Now, one one item I want you to think about is there's some debate, a lot of people will claim, especially those who are in the pre-wrath movement, and I'll talk about that later, they'll claim that the entirety of the 70th week of Daniel should not be conceived of as tribulation. The reason why is Jesus makes it a point in the Olivet Discourse to refer to the last three and a half years ...as the great tribulation. And so they will point out, look, the only time Jesus refers to tribulation... ...is the last three and a half years. And I want you to see where he says that. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew 24, 21 through 22. Matthew 24, 21 through 22. Please turn your Bibles there, and I'll show you where they will claim. So as you're turning there, the claim by some is that the entirety of the 70th week of Daniel cannot be referred to as tribulation, but only the last three and a half years. Now, I will show you that, yes, certainly the three and a half years are the worst. It's the great tribulation. But that does not negate the fact that the entirety of Daniel's 70th week should be conceived of as the wrath of God. Notice here in Matthew 24, 21 through 22, Jesus here is talking about the last three and a half years. And notice he says, "...for then there will be great tribulation... Such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Now stop there just real quickly. Notice in verse 21, Jesus is saying this is the worst time period ever. It'll never get this bad again. Well, wouldn't that reason that this would be in the last three and a half years of God's outpouring of wrath? Well, sure, that would reason. Okay. In other words, that's not something that's happening now. How many times do you go to here? some Protestant theologian claim that the book of Revelation is all things that happened in history. Well, if there are things that are happening in history, well, then you would have to have the worst time period ever now during the church age. And I always make the point that you can't have the worstest, right? You only have one worst time period. Now, have you and I during the church age seen demons come up out of the abyss as the book of Revelation states? No. We haven't seen the things that occurred in the Book of Revelation. Yeah.
3: The other day I was rereading a section in Genesis. Yeah. About uh, Babel, and then the table of nations after yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, one way that maybe would help people understand. Yeah. The tower builders wanted direct interaction with the demonic beings. The the Gods. Okay. They wanted to get what God had ended using the flood, yep. to when the sons of God came that's right. down. Okay. Yeah. So they wanted to get a hold of some kind of contact with the gods. That's right. Okay. So they're building this babel because that's what they want. Hmm. God frustrated it by confusing their languages so they couldn't understand each other, then they couldn't cooperate, and they couldn't build. That's right. And then we have them scattered into the various nations. Yep. So one way to think of it is that from that time when God judged them at Babel, all the way through even what now, yeah. God changed how humans are able to live on the earth. And he ordained... Human government to be kind of a mediation between humans and the realm of the spirits, especially the demonic ones. Right. Okay? And so we may complain about how bad it is, but we have no clue how bad it could be. Yeah. Okay? Because the wicked humans aren't as bad as the demonic beings that God's keeping us from. Right. So, occultism is trying to contact these beings, thinking they have the key to knowledge, to the secrets of the universe, and what have you. And they're they're very limited in how well they can do it. Now, look at it this way during Daniel's 70th week, God is going to remove the restraint, Uh tells us that, okay? The restraint is removed which I believe is how he's ruling in civil government, and allowing them to have what they wanted at Babel but couldn't get. And when they get it, again there will be direct, objective, tangible interaction between the fallen spirits and humans.
0: Exactly.
3: And these things, are more wicked than even fallen humans. That's right. If you can imagine. And they're going to get what they want. And it's going to be so bad, as it said, that if the time wasn't shortened... Yeah, no flesh would survive. Nobody would even survive. That's right. Because these beings are wicked, ruthless. The very, ten, the very uh, de- definition of what evil really is. That's right. Okay? So I would just say this. Be careful what you wish for. Yeah. (laughs) Right now, the whole world wants that. Right. Because they don't believe that the spirit world is evil. They think it's good. They think the spirits have some sort of benefit and that us uh, mean Christians are keeping people from having it. That's right. All right, so does and that make sense? Does it
0: does. Be- and Bob, you know, uh, one thing that you mentioned is very really helpful is the term tangibility. Tangibility in contact with these demonic beings after the flood was taken away, but that comes back. So let's think of conceptually on the timeline, if that's back here in history. All of a sudden, this tangibility comes back in the 70th week of Daniel, right. and that's why we have these demonic hordes coming out of, up out of the abyss. Well,
3: yeah. notice, if you go back to the, uh, narrative in Genesis when God uh, the divine counsel literally is uh, addressed there. Yeah. Says, well, we're going to confuse the languages. Right. They're not going to be able to do it. Well, what was the danger if they did do it? Yeah. Nothing that they Yeah, it would be withheld from them. Yeah, nothing, nothing yeah. that they want is going to be withheld. They're going to get what they want. Right. So the judgment that comes during the 70th week is literally God giving the wicked world,
0: what, they what they've
3: wanted all along and couldn't have, yeah, and they're going to be really excited about it until it really starts to unfold. That's right. And well then said. They're going to realize, and, and see, that's what's so foolish about um, what's going on in the religious and political world today. Yeah, because they think that if they get what they want, they'll have paradise on earth. And God is actually keeping them from hell on earth, literally. Yeah. Okay. And one of the ways that God has always kept us from hell on earth is nations with boundaries and civil government. Yeah. And so if you see people attacking nations with boundaries and civil Mm -hmm. government, they are antichrist people, whether they know it or not. Who are wanting hell on earth. Yes. And they are so deceived, they think they're going to get heaven on earth. Yeah. And when God says, okay, that's what you want. You don't want, you don't like how I do things. You don't like civil government. <laughs> you don't like boundaries. You don't like moral law. Okay, here you go. That's right. Daniel's 70th week. Yeah. You can read about it in the book of Revelation. I absolutely. And. Dear ones, it's literal. Yeah, it is. Eric is not being a sensationalist (laughs) by interpreting the book of Revelation literally. Yeah. It is as it says. It's that bad. It's that horrific. Yeah. God ended it with the flood and then what happened at Babel. But it's going to come back and it's not going to be anything good. And I believe that the rapture will happen before then.
0: Yeah, amen. You know, I was thinking as you were saying that, Bob, remember in Daniel 11:36, it says that he will not worship the God of his fathers, talking about the Antichrist. What's very interesting is a lot of people have speculated who the Antichrist will be and where he'll come from. One speculation was that it would come from Islam, that the Antichrist would be a Muslim. Obviously, Islam is not very good to Judaism, as it were. But what's very interesting about that concept is when you look at the claim that the Antichrist will not worship the God of his fathers? Well, what would you say of a Muslim who didn't believe in Allah? Well, he's not a Muslim. Well, who does the Antichrist line up better with? I would claim it's the Marxist. It was Barack Obama who said, we're the ones we've been waiting for. What did they do at the Tower of Babel? They wanted to make a name for themselves. It was Hillary Clinton who did her dissertation on Saul Alinsky, which is a Marxist, who wants a borderless world. Okay, so... Marxism, to me, is the end-time religion. What's interesting is Bob is republishing a book on the emerging church. The emerging church, the postmodern movement within Christianity, was a way for leftists to get a religion. See, there was a lot of Marxists out there who didn't have a church to go to, but the emerging church, what it is, is it's Christianized Marxism. Hegel is the root. Hegel was the instructor of who? Karl Marx. So Marxists now, when they go to church... They hear the same ideas in their church that they hear from the Democrat Party, a radical left-wing Marxist party. That's what they hear. They don't want borders. They want a borderless world. Their design for government isn't to restrain evil. It's to redistribute wealth and bring a utopia. They're not going to bring utopia. They're going to bring Babylon. They're going to bring a living hell, as Bob was saying. So that's where this is leading. So if I were to say, what does the end-time religion look like? It looks like Marxism. By the way, Pope Francis, what is he? He's a Marxist. That's what he is. Look at South America. South America is filled with Marxists. The social gospel went there. Social justice, that's Christianized Marxism. And it wrecked all of the countries in South America. So where did they go? They flee up to the United States, and they vote for the same thing that wrecked their countries, Marxism, Marxism, Marxism. If, in fact, those who were coming across the border were conservatives... The, the wall would have been built 30 years ago. But because they're going to vote for the same policies that destroyed South America, the, the left wants them in. Why? Because the left are Marxists. Marxists love other Marxists. That's how this is going. So anyway, I think you're right, Bob. I think that this is where this is all going. Um, I'm sorry, was there a question or a comment? Yeah, Norm.
2: In um, Matthew 24, 24, yeah. I think that's what Bob is talking about, where False Christs and false prophets will arrive, arise, and show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Yeah. So this is the last half of the, the last three and a half years. Yeah. And even as bad as it is, there are still people. The church is raptured, but there are still people that are being saved out of this.
3: Absolutely. That, uh, yes. Absolutely. And I was going to mention that. That's a good point, Norm. You got it exactly right. Because there will be a church. I think we should address that. Yeah. Because the pre-wrath and the post-trib people say, well, you're claiming a pre-trib rapture, so there's no church, so that makes no sense. Now, they're assuming that nobody can be saved right. during the tribulation, but that's not true. It does not say that. Right. And as a matter of fact, Israel... Will be saved at the very end of it. Yeah. Now, they they would say, "Well, th- that just doesn't make sense." Yes, it, it yes it does. Uh, there are people who will be saved. I think immediately yeah. after the rapture, they realize they should have yeah, listened. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. How long did it take? Just think about it. In Acts, we were thinking about Luke. Acts. Jesus made his prediction that in the power of, the, of God would come. How long? to take after Jesus ascended to heaven for there to become the church. Right. Immediately, yeah. Yeah, amen. Immediately. The day of Pentecost was fully came. They had a church. In fact, some of the best verses on defining the church are in Acts 2. So what makes anybody think there can't be a church during the tribulation? There will be one, and there will be one immediately. Uh, because people will be saved. Yeah. Now, I wouldn't recommend serving the devil and figure, well, if the rapture happens then I'll repent. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I had a well friend. <laughs> I just thought about this when I was in Bible college. There was a kid who was a, grew up in a Christian home, but he wasn't serving God until just very recently but before Bible college. And he said he was a partier running after parties and girls and beer. And his mom was a Christian, prayed for him, and finally he was running out to a party. and His mom said, all right, I can't stop you from what you're doing, but I just want you to know this. If the rapture happens while you're like this, you can still be saved, but you'll have to have your head cut off by Antichrist. <laughs> 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 and so this guy, it was really funny, he told me his story. So he says, in his unregenerate state, he was thinking, okay, Case of beer and girls Head uh, cut off by Antichrist oh, I'll take my chance <laughs> And he went out to the party Sure. But then later the Lord got a hold of him and saved him wow. and Somebody I knew for some years after that uh, So I think there may be a few of those where the rapture does happen
0: yeah. Mom was right Yeah, amen, wow Yeah, thank you Um You know, back to Matthew. Oh, I'm sorry, Norm, you made the point, too, about deceiving the elect. What kind of uh, miraculous things would happen within the 70th week of Daniel that would deceive the elect? Well, there's the idol that's made in the image of the Antichrist that speaks. There's the false resurrection of the Antichrist. Remember, he comes up out of the abyss. So what's interesting is there are things that occur from the power of the evil one That as Jesus is saying, if possible, now again, if possible, it won't lead astray the elect because the elect are held firmly in Christ's hands. But the idea is there's going to be miraculous powers done by the evil one and it will deceive those who do not have a love for the truth. Now, what is interesting is when you look back in the Old Testament, remember there was two doctrinal standards for a true prophet. One, if they said something, a prediction, if it didn't come true, they were not to be feared. But remember, there was also a doctrinal test. Even if a false prophet said something that came true, if they led you away from the true doctrines of the faith, namely from Yahweh, they were also to be rejected. So there was a theological test. Well, obviously, Antichrist is going to not pass that theological test. And true believers will see that. That's the idea. But I want you to understand that the deception Norm is referring to from Matthew 24, 24 is going to occur within the 70th week. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have it now, but it's going to even be worse within the last seven years. So, very good point. Now, back to Matthew 24:22, just two verses earlier. I just want to talk about the Great Tribulation. Bob had mentioned this. He says, unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So, the cutting short is the 70th week is only that. It's only seven years. And the last three and a half, called the Great Tribulation, if that had gone any longer, the idea is no human being would survive. That's how bad it is. So the reason I'm laboring that point is I want you to understand this is a unique time period. How many go out the door today and say, well, if this continues on, no flesh is going to survive? No, we don't have that. World War II was bad, but we only lost, was it 4% of the whole world's population? The 70th week of Daniel will lose over half, so it's going to be far worse. Now, the reason I was bringing this up is a lot of times people will claim that the entire tribulation period cannot be called the tribulation period. It's only the last three and a half years. Well, that's not true. I want you to see that the entirety of Daniel's 70th week should be considered tribulation. Why is that important? Because it has to do with the timing of the rapture. If you and I have been promised preservation from God's wrath, shouldn't you and I ask, well, when does the wrath occur? Well, if only the last three and a half years are God's tribulation, well, then what they argue is the rapture has to happen here, but prior to that, that isn't God's wrath; that's only the wrath of man. I'm going to show you that that's not the case. The entirety of Daniel's 70th week is the wrath of God. Let me prove that to you. Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter six, verse eight. I'm sorry, and as you're turning to Revelation six eight. Um, Luanne, you had a point. Well, I just wanted to,
1: you know, just love the continuity of how, you know, Matthew talks about the elect and whatnot. And then in 2 Thessalonians, Paul talks about it in chapter 2 where he said they perish because they did not accept the love of the truth in order to be saved. For this reason, God sends them a strong delusion. A lot of people have a hard time understanding that God would be the initiator of that delusion.
0: That's right, that's right. And it's just as Bob said, what does God do to the reprobate, those who have been handed over? He gives them what they want. You see this, for example, in Romans chapter 1 that God gave them over to their desires. And what did they do? They worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator who's forever praised. So the only thing that God has to do in a sense to harden the reprobate is he gives them what they want. What he has to do to save his elect is he has to give us what we don't want. He has to change us. He has to change our heart. That's why Jesus says, no one can come to me. Literally, no one has the ability to come to me unless the Father draws him. It's a supernatural act of God that any of us have our hearts changed so that we want the things of God. But for the unregenerate, those who are perishing, all God has to do to allow them to perish is let them alone, leave them alone. Give them what they want. And that's what Bob is pointing out. Yeah, they'll get what they want. They'll get the desires of their hardened hearts, which is going to be Antichrist, Babylon, etc. So, yeah, very good point. So, I'm sorry, where were we? Now, we're going to go to, oh, Revelation 6.8. So, here's what I want you to see. This is the beginning of the 70th week. Let me put the timeline up here. Revelation 6.8 is the fourth seal. All scholars agree that that's the beginning, towards the beginning of the 70th week, right about here. So, let's read. Revelation 6.8, this is the fourth seal. It says, I looked and behold, an ashen horse... And he who sat on it had the name Death. And Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. So notice there are four things that are going to kill a fourth of the human race, sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. Now, the argument by some is that's not the wrath of God. That's merely the wrath of man. So what they're arguing then is that what's occurring here at the beginning of the 70th week, if you look on the timeline, they will say, that's not the wrath of God, that's the wrath of man. Well, let me prove that that's the wrath of God. Turn your Bibles to Ezekiel 14, verses 19 through 21. And if someone could read that for me, I don't have it in my notes. In fact, if someone would read Ezekiel 14, 21 first... If someone could do that, if we have our reader, I'm just walking around without my Bible. So, oh, that's all right. Mike, would you do that? Thank you so much. Give me the verse again, please. Uh, Fourteen twenty-one of Ezekiel. Okay. And what you're going to see before he reads this, you're going to see the same means of judgment were placed on Jerusalem as the wrath of God during the Babylonian destruction. There were sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. Now, why did God's wrath come upon His own people? Because of their disobedience, their lack of faith. Well, what happens in the 70th week is God does a reversal. He saves Israel, but He pours this wrath upon the Gentiles, the Goim. Okay, but see that the four, this is an allusion. What you're seeing in Revelation 6:8 is a direct allusion to Ezekiel 14-21. So, go ahead and read this.
1: For this is what the Lord God says... How much worse will it be when I send my four devastating judgments against Jerusalem? Sword, famine, dangerous animals, and plague in order to wipe out both man and animal from it.
0: Beautiful. From the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, identical word for word, Ezekiel 14, 21, Revelation 6, 8. Sword, famine, pestilence, wild beasts. Now, why is that important? I'm sorry, I probably had to, (laughs) I should have had you stay there with the mic, but if you look just two verses earlier in verse 19, some of your versions will say indignation, fury, but the term is wrath. God says these are His wrath, means of His wrath. So what I'm saying is in Ezekiel 14:21, when God poured sword, famine, pestilence, wild beasts upon His own people, and that was wrath. Why is it no longer the wrath of God in the four, at the fourth seal here? Well, I'll tell you why. Because some people, it doesn't fit with their eschatology. (laughs) But it is the wrath of God. So my point in saying that, then, is the entirety of Daniel's 70th week should be considered the time of trial in tribulation. Remember labor pains. It's the beginning of labor pains. Labor pains aren't now. As Jim Palmer, famous elder at Gospel of Grace Fellowship, used to say, you and I are living during the time of discomforts within the pregnancy. But the labor pains come at the 70th week. The woman's water breaks and the tribulations get worse and worse. And the last three and a half years are so bad, it's called the great tribulation. But the entirety of Daniel's 70th week is the wrath of God. That's why we must be raptured prior to the 70th week. Okay, I'm sorry, we got uh, comments and questions. I know we had Scott back there and I'll come to you. Brian. Um, I was just going to say the Uh, pre rath claim that uh, the rapture is in the middle of the tribulation is... It's in the last... They, what they believe, Scott, is that it happens somewhere in the last three and a half years. Oh, in the last three and a half years. Yep. Oh, I was thinking it was right at three and a half no, years. No, that's the that mid-trib way. position. Yep. So here's the problem with that. What they would claim I mean, is imminence... Akin to date setting. <laughs> what, yeah, what they would claim is that imminence happens because you don't know when in the last three and a half years it will occur. The problem with that, however, is that when you see the abomination of desolation, remember that's at the three and a half year mark, you would know within the next 42 months, Christ is going to return. I don't think that that accords with the doctrine of imminence that we see throughout the New Testament. So that would be problematic. Yeah, okay. So with that, we just talked about the tribulation, the great tribulation. I think we've defined that. But let's go on to a very important concept called the day of the Lord. How many in here have ever done some research into what the day of the Lord is? Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot, Brian.
1: That's okay. I just wanted to point out that there's a lot of ministries out there that will uh, uh, convolute God's wrath, such as like if there's uh, a gay march in Florida, or if there's a, uh, a, a a tornado in Minnesota and it rips off a steeple or something. they they're, yeah. they're they're applying God's
0: wrath to a natural disaster. Well said. And one of the problems with that is we don't have an authoritative apostle or prophet on the scene of history that can tell us whether any given cataclysmic event is the wrath of God or not. So remember the Jews when you had the Tower of Siloam fell and they assumed that that was the wrath of God. Well, remember Jesus corrected them on that. Remember the man born blind? There were those who said that must be the wrath of God. Who sinned? It was either him or his parents. And Jesus cuts the Gordian knot and says, no, it was neither. It was so that God may be glorified.
1: Yeah, And, and we, can, we can never apply anything as
0: being the wrath of God until we get to that point. Yeah, so here's what I, what I would say is we have to be like John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist who said, who told you, brood of vipers, to flee from the wrath to come? The wrath is always pushed off to the eschatological age. Okay, so it's always in the 70th week. So any given event, if you have a neighbor who gets cancer, you can't say, well, there's the wrath of God. We don't know that. What you and I as believers are to be content with is warning people about the wrath to come. And you're exactly right, that comes in the 70th week of Daniel. Now, prior to that time period is the time of salvation. Now is the time to be saved. Now, that doesn't mean that cataclysmic events don't occur. They certainly will. But you and I can't know whether any one of those events is the wrath of God.
3: Yeah, Bob. Well, I remember specifically I was supposed I was out there to be on the radio one time. Yeah. And the guest previous to mine was talking with the host saying this was when that uh hurricane hit Louisiana. Oh yeah, Katrina. Orleans. yeah. Well so here these Christians say, Yep, that's the wrath of God. God's angry with all those wicked sinners in New Orleans and then because they had you know, they're famous for being sinners, so Obviously, that was God (laughs) uh, in in a greater sense than if, but then, see, here's the problem with that, and I had to just, I totally disagree. Yeah. That we cannot derive morals from nature. Amen. We can't, this is part of providence. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. The drought comes to the just and the unjust. The wind blows on the just and the unjust. The tornadoes hit where they hit as part of God's providence, but you do not learn morals from nature. Okay? Just because we don't like whoever happens to be in New Orleans doesn't prove that when something bad happened there, we're the good people. We're in Minnesota. Hmm. And they're the wicked people. They're down there. God's mad at those.
1: Uh,
3: So we have Christian preachers and writers claiming these things, and their theology is so bad. Yeah, I know. Now, here's my question. Why can't we learn better so we get it right? Right. Okay? Sometimes it's just wishful thinking. We get angry with sinners, okay, and then... When something bad happens to them, we think they are good. That's what we're looking for. Oh, yeah. Now God is just. But the fact is God tolerates wicked and evil doers throughout the entire church age and we're not God, we're not omniscient, and we don't know who's going to repent. And we shouldn't be wishing for people we don't like to die as if, as if we knew God isn't going to save any of them. Right. Do you? I don't know. Do you know that? Right. Do you know who God's going to save? And so we shouldn't be wishing for everybody that we don't like to die, uh, thinking yeah. that then God's justice is happening on the earth. God allows the just and the unjust, the good and the evil, and the right and the wrong to, to <laughs> carry on throughout history so that The church can be populated. Amen. Today and next week, I'll be talking about the final two verses, a few verses in Ephesians about defining the church. Yeah. What's happening now is God is building his habitation by saving sinners. Amen. And in order for that to go on, there's sinners all over the earth. We don't know who there are that's going to be saved, but we're commanded to go to. The whole world and preach the gospel. Amen. And so we can rejoice when one name is added to the in the old book of heaven, or one person, sinner repents. Yeah. The angels rejoice, right? Yeah. The Amen. angels rejoice. In the meantime, leave this in God's hands. Amen. Because where's the latest hurricane? Where's the latest earthquake? Right. That's where the sinners are. Right. <laughs> That's right. Come on, dear ones. We're making a bad name. <laughs> for the
0: gospel by saying these things. Right. You know, if Bob, you ever get on the radio, don't say it. Right? Do you remember some years ago you were doing a Sunday school and it was at the Fick Auditorium, I think it was back then and you talked about exemplary judgments. One thing that God provides in history are examples of judgment so that every person can conclude that God will not go indefinitely without punishing those who sin. Sure. One, one exemplary judgment would be the flood. Yep. When God sent the flood, it was His demonstration supernaturally in history that he won 't tolerate evil. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah these are listed in the Bible as what are called exemplary judgments, so that we can conclude God will not indefinitely tolerate sin; He will judge it. In fact, Peter uses those when he 's talking about the day of the Lord in second Peter chapter three that those serve as examples of judgment so that we know god will not allow sin to go on indefinitely. Yeah, Scott. I was just going to comment about the um the the LGBTQ movement using the rainbow as their symbol. Yeah. And I think the irony. what that is yeah is saying, "Ha ha, god, you can't judge us." Right. It's sad. The the rainbow set in the sky as a reminder that God's wrath will not come in the form of water flooding the earth is now used as a celebration for sin. But what's so sad is, you're right, the, the judgment's coming, and it's coming by fire, as it says. And uh, so, yeah, it's very perverse, and it is uh, a, a sad indictment of our times. Now, I want to, I'm sorry... Uh, Craig, and then um, after that I'll try to get to the day of the Lord and then I want to just introduce it to you because I want you to see how the day of the Lord is also tied to the 70th week. So the coming of Christ, the tribulation and the day of the Lord are all synonymous with the 70th week of Daniel. Yeah, Craig. I just wanted to reinforce Bob's point here. Remember when he was talking about uh, Luke and Acts. Yeah. And where he was talking about, um, just talking about here, the judgment on people. We don't know who's going to be judged and who's going to be saved. Right. And what he talked about in Luke and Acts was we saw in Luke 9 that Jesus went and the disciples went to the Samaritans and the Samaritans initially rejected them. And the disciples wanted to call down fire, fire yeah. on the Samaritans. Right. Well, what happens in Acts chapter 8? Well, the Samaritans are saved. They're saved. So we don't, we don't know who's, who's going to be saved, and we shouldn't right. be calling down judgment. Let's be content, time. just as John the Baptist was. Who told you to flee from the wrath to come? The wrath to, It's the wrath coming. We are to warn against the wrath to come. But our job isn't to say that any given event in someone's life is the wrath of God. Our job is to save them. Let, let God's wrath, when he sends it, that's his doing. Our job is to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our job isn't to be those who proclaim any given calamity to be the, word, to be the judgment or the wrath of God. By the way, someone will react against that, and they'll say, well, wait, the Apostle Paul declared that those who abused the Lord's Supper fell dead, some of them. My response to that is, they said that happened in the New Covenant. That happened during the church age. But my reply to that was, yes, but the Apostle Paul is an apostle. He's one who speaks the very words of God. I'm not. So if there's someone who drops dead, I dare not say, well, it's because they're abusing the Lord's Supper. I don't have any idea. The Apostle Paul can make that authoritative proclamation, but I certainly don't have the authority to do so. So let's be, as a people of God, content with the wrath to come. That's what we're warning people about. The wrath is coming. That's sufficient. Yeah. Now, let's talk about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is one of the biggest concepts in the entire Bible. Very succinctly, three things regarding the day of the Lord. Number one, God will bring about all of his promises to Israel. Number one. Now, you might say, well, what does that have to do with me as a Gentile believer? Because you were grafted in. You were grafted in. And the only way anyone's going to be a partaker of these promises that are coming to Israel is if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, whether Jew or Gentile. Second, the day of the Lord has to do with wrath coming upon the enemies of God once and for all and forever. It will be an eternal wrath. Third, it has to do with the salvation of God's people. That's the day of the Lord. And that was so predicted in the Old Testament. What I want you to see is that when it comes to the day of the Lord, there are two ways that the Old Testament writers conceived of it and also the New Testament. That is, there was a broad day of the Lord and a narrow day of the Lord. And what I would claim to you is that the broad day of the Lord begins with the inception of the 70th week of Daniel. So the 70th week of Daniel is not only the beginning of the coming of Christ, it's not only the beginning of the tribulation, it's the beginning of what we call the broad day of the Lord. Now why is that important? Because the broad day of the Lord, there are no signs that precede it. So this is why the Apostle Paul would say, for example, in First Thessalonians 5, that the day of the Lord comes while they're saying peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them. It comes upon them like a thief in the night. So think about it. Let's go to our timeline. If the day of the Lord comes like a thief, what else comes like a thief? Well, Jesus says his parousia, his coming is like a thief. Well, if his coming is like a thief and the day of the Lord is like a thief, they have to to happen coterminously, that is at the same time, because if one were to precede the other, one would cease to come like a thief. Are you with me? So the broad day of the Lord begins, if you look on the screen here in just a moment, at the beginning of the 70th week. There's no signs that precede that. The narrow of the day of the Lord, that's the very 24-hour period where the Messiah returns to fight against the enemies of Israel at the end of Daniel's 70th week. So here's the broad day of the Lord. Look on the screen. The broad day of the Lord begins at the rapture. And it extends all the way into eternity. But it begins at the inception of Daniel's 70th week. The narrow day of the Lord, if you look on the screen, is this 24-hour period that is unique, as it's referred to in Zechariah 14, where the Messiah comes to fight for the enemies of Israel. Sometimes the biblical writer is referring to the broad day of the Lord. Sometimes they're referring to the narrow day of the Lord. By the way, I've used this analogy before, but You might say, well, that's not right. Come on, how can the biblical writers use day differently? You and I use day differently. For example, years ago, I asked my grandpa how much gas was in his day. Now, he didn't say, well, what specific day are you referring to? He just knew that I was talking about a general period of time, and it was obviously a lot cheaper. But I remember one time I was bringing him to get his hair cut, and I asked him, where were you the day that John Kennedy was shot? Well, there I'm referring to a specific day, aren't I? Well, in the same way the biblical writers conceived of the day of the Lord as a broad period of time, but sometimes they would focus in on the narrow time, this unique day where the Messiah would set His feet on the Mount of Olives, as it says in Zechariah 14, and fight against the enemies of Israel. So, next week what I'll do is I'll start unpacking this idea of the day of the Lord. But let me give you a little reading assignment. I was going to read it here, but I want you to read Isaiah 13... Verses 6-11. through 11. Read Isaiah 13, 6-11 because what you'll understand is this is a reference to the day of the Lord, and Jesus refers to it in his Olivet Discourse. In particular, you'll note in Isaiah 13, 8 that there's a reference to labor pains. That's something that Jesus refers to in Matthew 24, 8 when he talks about the day of the Lord or Daniel's 70th week. He says these things are like labor pains. So I want you to read that, and what you're going to see is in Isaiah 13:6 through 11, the day of the Lord was conceived of as a global event. In fact, it, the promise is that sinners would be exterminated from the entire earth. And I want you to think about how does that relate to what Jesus said when he said, unless those days be cut short no flesh would survive. So please read that section and we'll use that as the basis to talk about how does the day of the Lord fit into the 70th week and we'll show you evidence and we'll put all this together and then we'll start looking at the different eschatological views. We'll look at post-trib, mid-trib, pre-trib, pre-ref, and then we'll look at the different eschatology views on the millennium. We'll finish with the last verses of Revelation and we'll be done. It'll be all wound up in a binder for you. So that's what we will be. Binders. Yeah, binders, yeah. <laughs> Remember, uh... Presidential candidate. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, good point. So, with that, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that we've been spared from the wrath to come from your Son. And we do pray, Lord, that we'd be a compassionate people here and now, that the gospel would be upon our lips, that we would warn people about the wrath to come, but we wouldn't be flippant about their problems and things that beset them. We'd be those who are merciful, those who reflect your goodness and graciousness during this church age. We do pray, Lord, for opportunities to proclaim your gospel to those who are perishing. We pray, Lord, that as we look at your promises, um, as Bob lays them out for us in the sermon, that you'd give us clarity of thought, that you'd enable us by your spirit to persevere until that day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.